0: Last session, we finished with our response to Him. Once we see He is the Lord who comes to die for our sin and rise again to rule, then we trust our Saviour and we submit to our Lord. But when we look at Mark 8 and see what Jesus required of us to be His disciples, we discover what this submission and trust is really like in His words, not my words. My words are the trust and submit. His words, I want you to pay attention to, because they're better than mine, which are deny, take up, and follow. And so, back to verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. But even if he requires this of me, there's last four, the last of the talks, the last question, why should I do it? I mean, he is asking a lot. Well, he's asking more than a lot, he's asking for everything. So in this last session, we're answering this question, why should I? And again, before turning to Jesus' three reasons that he gives, I'll give you three in our terms, uh, one at length and two very briefly. So the firstly is going to take a little while, the secondly and thirdly you'll creep up on you and shoot past you, those note takers. So starting off these three reasons, there's lots of other reasons I may say, but the first reason and the first and foremost reason is truth. You see, do you see the importance of the answering the question, who do I say that I who do you say that I am? That answer determines everything else that flows in your relationship to Christianity, in your relationship to Christ. I mean, if he's a liar, if he's a lunatic, if he's a legend, then you should have nothing to do with him. You should get rid of him, denounce him, reject him. You would be absolutely foolish to give your life to him if he's a liar, lunatic or legend. Uh, He will not be able to save you if he's any one of those three things. That's straightforward in one sense. But if he's the Lord, the one who has died for your sins and risen to rule, the one who, for whom and by whom you were made, the one who rules the universe, the one who will that day come to return and judge you, if he is the Lord, that Lord, well then you'd be foolish. You'd be very foolish, wouldn't you? Not to give your life to him. For he alone has made you, owns you, rules you, has say will judge but the question who do you say that I am which in that translation uh, from Holman was right in emphasizing the you you who do you say that I am is the existential question but by existential I'm not I'm not meaning relativism I'm meaning you that's the emphasis what is your answer it's not, what is your truth? That's a load of nonsense if ever there was. I've got my truth, you've got your truth. No, that's just complete rubbish. That's, that's I've got no brains, country. Right? There is no your truth, my truth. That, that is just absolutely ridiculous stupidity which shows the total intellectual moral bankruptcy of intellectual academic atheism today that people would say such nonsense things who wants to have a postmodern surgeon operating on them uh, it's an absurdity i want one who knows the difference between a leg and an arm <laughs> and who doesn't say well it was a leg to me i sorry it was an arm to you but don't worry it's an appendix to somebody else and you're lucky because my other colleague he thought it was your brain truth is truth it's not your truth my truth it is truth but do i accept the truth or do i see it as a lie when we talk of jesus so it's not relativism it's you your response and that is it's existentialism in the sense of you do what is true so once you say to me well i believe jesus is pick an l The next question that should come to you is, how do you know, and what's the evidence for your conclusion? Because we can discuss how you know, and we can discuss the evidence, and we can persuade each other to change our minds, to be in accordance with the truth. But then there's this other question, this existential question, what are you doing about the truth? For truth that you believe is true that you do nothing about is to live without integrity. And so the question is existential. Who do you say that I am? And so the truth of the answer demonstrates your integrity. For if you seem as a liar, legend, lunatic, and you can't give any reasons for your answer, you're really choosing your own life over the truth that is God's. You're just rationalising the amoral self-centeredness of your rejection of God. If you've got reasons and arguments for believing that he's a liar, a lunatic, a liar, well, that, that makes sense. But then you are open to discussing it. However, if you say he is the Lord, but you ignore his requirements of you, well, you really don't believe your own answer. Tell and Penn are a magic duo on stage. Penn is the uh, the taller of the one who talks and is a great advocate for atheism. Hands up, those who have ever seen Tell, Penn and Tell. There's lots of little YouTubes of them, aren't they? They're an interesting couple. Penn Gillette, he is the Uh, He's the one who speaks, and he's a very keen atheist. But he understands integrity. He recognises it. See, he says, um, I don't respect people who don't proselytise. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell, and people would be going to hell and not getting eternal life or whatever, And you think it's not really worth telling them because it makes it socially awkward. (laughs) He continues, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytise? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? It's interesting, isn't it? He's an atheist that I respect because he's a man of integrity. I disagree with him in his conclusions about atheism, but he's not a fudger. He recognises that if it's true, you do something about it. If it's false, you do something about it. But integrity is taking action on what you believe. To say he's the Lord... And go on living your own life your own way lacks any integrity. But it's not only your integrity that's at stake. It's also Jesus' integrity. For he answered the the question of who he is with great clarity in Mark 8 when he strictly charged them not to tell about him and with great courage in Mark 14 when he answered the high priest at his trial and the high priest asked him are you the Christ the son of the blessed and he said I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated to the right hand of of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus knew who he was and declared who he was. He knew it from his baptism when the voice of God made it clear. And in his whole life and ministry, publicly and privately, he lived and taught the kingdom that he, the Christ, was bringing. And he demanded his disciples the appropriate response for the coming king. But Jesus also knew why he came, namely to be rejected and killed as the suffering servant of Isaiah, paying for the sins of the whole world, giving his life as a ransom for many. And so he required of his disciples the appropriate sacrifice of their lives for other people's salvation. So living the truth is not just a question of your integrity, it's also about Jesus' integrity. For to deny Jesus' claims by your life is to call Jesus a liar. And what evidence have you got that he's a liar? And so we start giving our answers to the question of why we should give our lives to him. And the first answer is because of truth. Truth in its academic, truth in its existential sense. It's it's the thing you live because it's right. Secondly, I told you it was going to take a long time, that first one. I'm still under point two now, kind of. Secondly, we could answer because his life, death, resurrection answers the questions of life. It's not only true, but it answers the big questions. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Who am I? Where do I fit into the grand scheme of things? Why should I be moral? How should I live? I read atheist literature regularly and frequently and I can assure you they have no answer to these questions other than there's no reason, there's no purpose, there's no good, there's no evil, there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no purpose. Do as you like. Life is your own adventure. You make it up in any way you want to make it up. Dawkins has a three-part YouTube uh, videos on the purpose of life. Halfway through the third one, he kindly comes clean and says, Actually, there's no purpose to life. <laughs> it's it's you are a purpose kind of creature who who looks for purpose. You create the purpose that you want to make for life. Because there is no purpose. There is no good. There is no evil. There is no right. There is no wrong. There's just whatever you think. Because you've got to go a long way through his wonderful videos before you actually come clean and find out that is where atheism is. It is amoral. There is no morality. It is purposeless it is meaningless now it may be true but if it's true then heaven help us (laughs) because when there's a shortage of toilet paper every man to himself society is a total corruption and collapse society is a nonsense Humanity is a nonsense. You are but an accident. Whether you live, whether you die, doesn't matter. Atheists don't have the answers at all. It's very sad when you read their literature. They are very sad as a group of people. Whereas Jesus answers answers the big questions of life. Third reason, verse 35, gives us another reason, namely to give your life to Jesus and the gospel will save it. Whereas you hang on to your life now and you'll lose it. Well, that brings us then to Jesus' three reasons. Point three on the outline, easier to take notes from here on in. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and is my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's his three reasons, verse 36, 37 and 38. I've summarised them with three words, profit, return and shame. The first then, in verse 36, is a profit and loss issue, which the Holman doesn't use the word profit and loses the point a little bit there. It's an economic thing. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Here's the question for us, friends. What does it profit us to gain everything and lose the one thing that matters, your very self? Then you have nothing, nothing but a coffin and a grave, nothing but a coven put into a crematorium flue. but atheism life is standing in the queue to the crematorium that's all it is you're born at the back of the queue and you spend the next 70 years shuffling your way forward in the queue en route you play a game of football you play a game of cards you meet someone and marry them you create some other kids who are at the back of the queue and you're just steadily pushing there until you hit the front of the queue and then you up the flue and that's the end of you It's called the book of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Which I gather you've been looking at of recent times. That's where it is. But if you know that there's more to life and can find more to life and find the meaning and purpose and find salvation that goes beyond the crematorium, but yet you want to hang on to your life instead of embracing that which is the truth, how sad. How mad are the stories of what I've seen of people forfeiting their souls for the girl in the bed, for the promotion at the office, for the lowering of the golf handicap, for the three bedroom house in suburbia, for the boyfriend who didn't serve Jesus, for the alcohol, for the drugs, the list goes on and on. I've lived a long life and I tell you, they are all so silly. What profit is there in gaining what you want? at the cost of your soul. The bloke I knew. He knew the truth of Jesus, but the girl of his dreams had finally said yes to him. So he walked away from the gospel because she wouldn't have anything to do with Christianity. Only to have her drop him a month or so later. How do you go back to Jesus as second best in your life? a default option when the girl doesn't want you anymore. He never made it back. How could he? You walk away from the truth, it will bite. Or the girl I knew who would sit outside the bar in his ute as his mates would would every now and then bring out a beer for her to drink as she would wait and wait for him to come and take her home when he felt like it. Again, she knew the truth of the gospel. She knew that this bloke was no good. She knew there was no future in him, and yet she hoped, she she longed, she loved his affection when he could ever be bothered to give it to her. You shake your head and you wonder what hold did that man have over that woman that she would trade her soul for him. Most people, it's not as extreme in its stupidity as that because most of us are more discreet. We have more acceptable, highly approved, socially acceptable forms of stupidity the cares and riches and pleasures of life that slowly choke the person and they become unfruitful. It's not that university asks hard questions that we can't answer. Rarely do they, does, any, does somebody reject Christianity for purely intellectual reasons. It's the other distractions of life, the pleasures of life, the pleasures of youth, the busyness of life, the, the social swirl that people can be involved in, the, the the grog parties, the sex parties, whatever it might be, but it's a university is not a place of deep intellectual thought. That's a mythology of a previous generation, many generations ago. It's a training ground for future technicians. Uh, it's a place where you get a career. Uh, education is a byproduct that somehow sometimes some people stumble on by accident. But you see, the divided life is unlivable. So we give in to the immediate and stop proclaiming the gospel of the living Christ. All the time my identity moves slowly and subtly and silently from being a Christian to being an engineer, to being a lawyer, to being an accountant, to being a manager, to being a company director, as I climb the ladder of success to nowhere. Again, Years ago, I passed through my middle age. Middle age is always five years older than you are. At this stage, I'll be living a very long life. (laughs) A long time ago, I passed through middle age, and I watched my contemporaries come to middle age when they reached the top of the ladder and then discovered that the view wasn't worth having, and there are a whole bunch of young people behind them trying to push them off the top of the ladder. I spoke to a man who said, every Monday morning is awful because I come in waiting for the envelope on my desk. Because when you reach a certain stage, you earn so much money that you're no longer economic. They can replace you with two or three younger men. And it's the same amount of money. And so you come in every Monday morning thinking, is the letter going to be there today? Is this the end of my career hype up to the top? I haven't spoken to him some years, but I have heard that he got the letter. See, the divided life is ultimately unlivable. So we go into the immediate and not live the long term. What does it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your own soul? What is it in your life that is so valuable to you that you'll not give it up? in return for the one who gave up heaven and visited hell for you. What price do you put on your life? People make these decisions, you see. The man I know who set aside everything to become a a, a tennis star, he was very, very good. He was really a first-class tennis player. He was on the edge of Davis Cup selection for Australia. Everything in his life was set aside for his muscles, for his strategy, for his skills. But he never made it. Only a few do. And in the process, he lost all the other things of his life. Family, friends, job, university, education for something that he just was number seven in the team of six. It's very sad, isn't it? A goal that was beyond him. Well what do you hang on to? What what are you willing to say is so important to me I won't let go of the, I will I will still let go of everything else, but I'm gonna hang on to that because I tell you Whatever it is, it's not as good as the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not worth hanging on to. So the second argument Jesus uses, verse 37, explains the first with a a rhetorical question that drives the point home. It's the commercial transaction question of what do you give in return for your soul? Uh, The question should require no answer, for the answer should be obvious to us all. There's nothing that you can give in return for your soul. That's why there's no point in gaining the whole world and forfeiting your soul, for there's absolutely nothing in your life more important than your life. So what <laughs> can you give in return for your life? Let me show it to you from the Psalms. Come back with me to Psalm 49. Psalm 49. Turn in your Bibles or f- slide your fingers across your screen or whatever it is you do. For those with brilliant memories, just think about it. <laughs> and Psalm 49 has a little introduction about the importance of listening to what i got to say. And then from verses 5 to uh, 12... Uh, it has the first verse and then verses 13 through to 20. The second verse has a chorus at verse 12 and verse 20. Man in his pomp will not remain, he's like the beasts that perish. In verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. The question that kicks off the argument is verse 5. Why should I fear in the times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Well, why should I fear rich people? Well, because rich people can do a lot of damage to you. That's why. It's fairly obvious. The rich always win. But verse 7 goes on. Truly, No man can ransom another or give God the price for his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. See, the rich may be very rich, they may be very powerful, they may be very scary, they may be always able to get what they want, but in the end, they can't. In the end, they die just like I die. They die just like the poor die. Death is the lot of everyone and your riches are irrelevant because no man is rich enough. Here's the rich man's problem. Uh, Jesus spelt it out with the rich young ruler. If you remember the event of the rich young ruler when a man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus pointed out to him about the commandments and then the man pursued the question. So Jesus says, go sell all that you've got, give to the poor, come follow me. And the man went away sorrowful because he had great riches. And Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are a bit astonished by that. They say, well, if the rich can't enter the kingdom of heaven, who could? They haven't understood the riches of this world are an obstacle to getting in the kingdom of heaven. Because the rich depend upon themselves and their wealth. And Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of an eagle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. They said, well then, who could be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Here it is before us, you see, the psalmist says, who is rich enough to buy their way out of death? And the answer is, no one. And so, in your pomp, verse 12, you're just like the beasts. The animal dies, you die. We put the animal into the furnace, we put you into the furnace. We bury the animal, we bury you. You're just the same as an animal. That's very sad, isn't it? But the psalmist and Jesus have the answer. For the psalmist goes on to say in the 2nd verse, the second stanza of his poem verse 14, like sheep they're appointed for Sheol Sheol's the place of the dead, death will be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me no one is rich enough Not Mr. Packer, not Mr. Gates. Nobody is rich enough to ransom their own soul out of hell or to ransom anybody else's. But God is. There's the difference. What is impossible for man is possible for God. Indeed, more than possible. For Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he was doing. What we cannot do, he did. What, no matter how rich you are, you cannot do, he did. Oh yes, with God it's possible. For God's Son could and did pay the price that none of us could afford. For God's Son could and did give his life as a ransom for another. And not simply for another, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? There's nothing in all the world, in all the riches, that he will ever be able to give in return for his life. My friends, nobody is rich. I've never met a person who says, I'm rich. We all know that there's somebody else richer than me. And as long as there's somebody else richer than me, I'm not rich. I mean, all things are marked on the curve, aren't they? And I'm not rich because there's well, there's Bill Gates, there's Jim Packer, there's Mr. Buffett, there's all these rich people who so say, I'm not rich. But in Australia, even the poor people are rich. Australia, it varies from day to day, and goodness knows what's happening now with the virus and our economy. But Australia has been and is the second, has the second highest median income in the world, median. Now, let us remember, I presume we have some arts people here. <laughs> There's mode, mean, and median, right? The median is the one where you pick the middle person in the distribution, right? That's that one, right? It's not the average, that's the mean. It's not the mo- it's the median. That is, Australia does not have super-rich people, does not have super-poor people. Australia just has middle-class people. And as a community, we are amongst the richest communities in the world. So that our middle person in Australia, the person who has as many poor people beside him as he has rich people beside him, that person will be the second-highest in the world. Furthermore... This is the richest century in the history of humanity. So we are amongst the richest people in the richest time of all humanity. That's who we are. And we have had decades in Australia of continued economic growth. And once we start university, we are on the rich side of the median. Because Professional salaries are always ahead of other salaries. So here you are, a group of rich people looking at the Bible today. And some of you, most of you, want to profess to be Christians. Well, if so, you are an out-and-out miracle. Because a camel has just been squeezed through the eye of the needle to get you into the kingdom of God. It's only the work of God that could get rich young rulers like you into God's kingdom. It's a miracle. But are you a Christian? Have you accepted the lordship of Jesus Christ over all your life as your ransom from the grave? For I tell you, as I told you yesterday, it means saying no to self, which rich people hate doing, taking up your cross, which rich people hate doing, and following the suffering, suffering servant in laying down your life for the salvation of others, which rich career people really hate doing. Because I've just spent four years training myself, five years training myself to be an X, Y, Z. And now you're saying, give up X, give up Y, give up Z, and come be a servant of other people for their salvation. I'm saying, yes, you have to lose your life for the sake of Jesus in the Gospels to save it. And time will tell If your Christianity is authentic, behaviour will tell, the choices of life, the decisions you make. You can tick the box saying, I believe that. God is not impressed. You live the life of believing that is what is required of us. Jesus' third argument for why you should give up all to him and the gospel follows from the first two. And it's about shame now and then in verse 38. Who is ever ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation? Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. Are you going to take up his cross and follow him? Because that means you're willing to share the shame and rejection of this world for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. How much shame, how much criticism are you willing to accept in order to be the one person out of the tutorial group, out of the lecture class, out of the prac class, in your group of friends, being willing to be different? A woman I spoke to a few months ago was at a federation meeting. 300 members, 300 representatives at this federation meeting. They were all given a big card supporting abortion. So they can have a big federation meeting photograph of all the teachers saying we uh, accept abortion on demand. This one woman said, no, I will not do it. She was given a really hard time. How do you feel one out of 300 who will say no? See, the world follows peer pressure. It's not just junior teenagers who follow peer pressure. It's adults, spineless, gutless, brainless adults who follow peer pressure. Even a dead dog can swim with the current. You've got to be alive to ever swim against it. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're always swimming against the current of this world. And it hurts. How much shame? How much criticism are you willing to accept to stand against the world? This week coming, if university's on, uh, we're not allowed to gather in groups of more than five hundred anymore. But that's all right; it's only a hundred in England, so. If university still continues this week, you'll be asked, what did you do over the weekend? You know, it's a classic Australian question, isn't it? Did you have a good weekend? Uh, no one really answers. It's like, are you well? You know, no one answers. Um, unless you say, no, I've got a really bad cough. They'll, they'll answer you then. <laughs> Stay away. But what will you answer? You know someone's going to ask you. Think out your answer right now. I'll tell you what you should be answering, of course, is the truth. I had a great weekend. I went to a conference about giving my life to the Lord Jesus Christ and explaining it to other people like you. That's the truth, isn't it? You don't have to say, oh yeah, I watched Netflix on Sunday afternoon. Oh oh, yeah, it it was a bit rainy, wasn't it? I mean, there's all kinds of answers you can give that just avoid the question, aren't they? Keep your head down. Duck for cover. Never speak the truth. Self censorship, it's called. <laughs> rest assured, if you're not willing to stand up for Jesus, he won't stand for you. Not when it counts, really, on the last day. All Christians have to give up their lives to make Jesus known. Some of us must plan to give up our jobs to do that, to spend the rest of our lives making Jesus known. Others must plan to give up our wealth. To assist those who have done that. To make Christ known requires human agents to do it. People who have got the gifts of understanding, of being able to explain things and relate to other people. That's why the pressure is on you as a Christian at university to be that person. Because our system has selected you out for the very kinds of competencies that are required to be missionaries. So your problem at university is not whether I should go into full-time Christian ministry, but why shouldn't I? And there are reasons that connect with individuals. But the, the shift has taken, you see, rich young rulers, to those who are given much, much is required. You haven't been given much so as to serve yourself, you've been given much so as to serve others. That's what you've been given, much to serve others. My son went to uh, Sydney Boys High School. It still was the selective school for boys in those days when he went. I don't know whether it is now or not, but it was when he went. He went to the old boys, you know, dinner 20 years after graduation, after school kind of thing. He said it was appalling. All these really, really able, bright young men, middle aged men then. He only met one who had any social conscience of using the gifts that had been given to them for the benefit of other people. Everybody else was making money, divorcing wives, travelling, climbing the greasy pole, None of them had any sense of using the great education that had been provided for them, for the benefit of other people. It was interesting. The other one was a very devout Jewish man. That was the only other one. There were no Christians in the group that he was with. It's classic Australia. If you're a Christian, you live and die For the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you live and die for the Lord Jesus Christ? By serving other people. And what's the most important way of serving them? Well, even the atheist Penn knew what's the best way. Get them out of hell. Has to be the best. So, why? Why should we do what he wants? Well, because of who he is. The risen, assassinated king assassinated by our sinfulness, dying on the cross to pay for our sins, taking away the just condemnation that we deserve. Because he was not just another man, but God become man to die for us. And more than that, he so paid for our sins that death could not hold him. And so he is the risen, assassinated king, risen to be king of kings and lord of lords, ruler of rulers, the owner of everything. You see, Christianity is all about Christ. And the first talk, the first question, is the big question. Who is he? If you're going to answer that truthfully and honestly, then you've got to provide the evidence as why you believe it. And if you believe he's the Lord, then what he requires of you and why you should give it to him follows logically. It's pretty simple, Christianity, in this regard. So the answer to that question is not what you say but what you do. Call him the king of your life, sing those songs about it, take my life and let it be, constant to you. That was the song we were just singing, wasn't it? And I remember seeing a young man who had just become a Christian in Manly many years ago when I was the assistant minister there, he was a bikie and he, we used to pass the plate in church in those days and we Someone passed in the plate, just as we sang the words, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And they gave him his money bag to put in. He said, they picked on me. Because his conscience was ready to give all that he had. And now they had mentioned money. That sacred, holy thing of even bikies in Australia. We sing that song with out the words appearing, uh, with gusto. Do you really want to sing that? You call him Lord, means living and dying for him. He's the king whether you acknowledge it or not, but do you acknowledge him? I don't think I should go this far without actually showing you how you reach that point. You see there are lots of de facto marriages in this world but they're not real marriages and they fail very badly, their success rate is very low compared to de jure marriages. The real marriage requires a wedding, it requires publicly acknowledging that you're having sex with this man, with this woman and hope to raise children together and live with each other and that it's a joining together of two families into a new unit so as to spread humanity and the net of humanity. The wedding, the contract, the covenant, is a very important part of the the marriage. Marriage is more than a wedding, but a wedding is a very important part of a marriage. For it's where you seal the deal. (laughs) Well, what about becoming a Christian? It's what you do that matters, not just what you say. But what you say needs to be expressing what you are planning to do. And so what you say its not to me, it's to God. Here's a little prayer that I've created many years ago on what you need to say to God. It doesn't have to be exactly these words, just like the wedding service, you can recast the words if you like. But these are the words that are central and fundamental to what it's about. It's three paragraphs, the first paragraph which acknowledges about yourself. It talks about you. It's I, 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 all down that first paragraph. And it's all negative. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve. I am guilty. I need forgiveness. If you haven't grasped that about yourself, you're never going to make it. Second paragraph is thankfulness. You thank God for sending Jesus. You thank God for raising Jesus. Because it's out of Jesus' death that you're forgiven. Out of his resurrection, you're given new life. Because it's all about Jesus, you see. The third paragraph is the prayer of the prayer. Please forgive me. I need forgiveness. Jesus has died that I be forgiven. Please forgive me. And then please change me. I don't want to keep living like I am. And Jesus has risen to give me new life. So please change me. But the change is that I might now live with Jesus as my king, as my lord, as my ruler. That's what's involved in actually becoming a Christian. That is your prayer. But as with the wedding, you then don't go home to your parents. You start living the life of husband and wife together as with that prayer, you don't go back to living your old life. You now start living with Jesus as your Saviour whom you trust and as your Lord whom you submit to. So why don't we finish this talk, uh, this last in this series, by praying this out aloud together. And those of you who don't want to, that's all right. No one's going to be listening in to you other than God. Uh, It doesn't matter that you're not praying out loud. I'd rather you were honest and didn't pray than just mouth words that you didn't mean. But if this is your prayer, then it's not only the prayer to become a Christian, it's the prayer for every day of your life. In Mark's Gospel it says, take up your cross and follow me. In Luke's Gospel it says, take up your cross daily and follow me. It's the same. I tell my wife every day I love her, just as I did on the 22nd of August, 1969. Ready to pray? Let's pray. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. My friends, if it is your prayer, you will be forgiven. I know that. How do I know that? Because Jesus' blood was shed. Your forgiveness is written in his blood. And you will be changed. How do I know that? Because Jesus is king and has sent his spirit to change you. And if this is your prayer, genuinely your prayer, I know that you won't go on living the way you have. But for the whole of your life, or just for today, whichever it is, you will seek to be different for Jesus' sake. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for our time together and pray that you would be with us all, that we may continue to serve you by serving each other. We pray for those, Father, who are not yet sure of who your Son is and what he has done for us, that you would help us to continue to search with integrity the truth that lies in the events of Jesus. And Father, we pray for that integrity, that finding that truth, we might live it out. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.